Welcome back to Not Everything's Political with Eric Erickson as part of the resurgent and WSB doing these conversations with folks in and around politics about anything but politics. Uh, today's guest, Jake Tapper from CNN. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, it's my honor. Thanks so much, Eric. So I, I want to talk to you about cartoons because every once in a while we get to see this on Twitter. You actually are really good at drawing cartoons, something I am absolutely incapable of doing. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm really good. I wanted to be a cartoonist. Um, I wanted to be a cartoonist professionally. I um, uh, did what I did it in, in high school. I did it in college. I tried to get a syndicated comic strip. Uh, I came close in the early 90s, but I didn't quite get there. Um, and since then, I, you know, I did a lot of freelance cartooning for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Washington Post, and, um, and uh, I did stuff for the American Spectator, and I, did a, I had a weekly comic strip with Roll Call back when Roll Call was, I think, a weekly newspaper, or maybe twice a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, when I joined ABC News, um, they said I had to hang up the pen. So I pretty much... I pretty much did, um, and uh, but it's a real joy, and uh, I collect a lot of cartoon stuff at home, original comics from like um, the 50s and 60s, uh, Doonesbury's and Pogo, and uh, yeah, it's a real it's a real joy of mine. I'm trying to get my kids into it, but they're not they're not really biting. I think I think when you're raised on animation the way that they are, right. still a still on a page isn't as cool. So, what's your favorite cartoon? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess Doonesbury um, was my favorite. Um, just uh, the, the, during the era, I mean, he's he's all in. He's pretty much except for Sundays. He's in he's in reruns now. Right. But um, the era of uh, Doonesbury in the seventies and eighties, which was I just found like a very very funny and biting and clever commentary on on not just politics but social mores and life. Um, I really loved Peanuts growing up too. Um, I loved uh, the comics. I loved uh, I loved Peanuts. I loved Pogo. I guess those three were the big ones. But there are a bunch of other ones that you know I like. I really like Little Abner mm-hmm. um, as well. And at home, you know, I have like the the volume collections of like every single strip by <laughs> nice by uh, by these people. But I you know I guess those four: Doonesbury, Peanuts. A little Abner and uh, and Pogo. I was always a Calvin and Hobbes and Far Side guy. I love I, those. You know, they're great. I yeah, I have all I have their collections too. I mean, uh, those are wonderful, wonderful comic strips. It's going to sound odd to say it, but they they're a little late for me. Like my <laughs> my love of cartoons came way before uh, Calvin and Hobbes and Far Side, but they're brilliant. They're mm-hmm. absolutely those two are both brilliant. I have and I and I have th- those collections as well. So. How did you get into first your cartoons, and you also do a lot of writing and transition into being someone in in front of the camera? How how did that happen? Uh, well, it just you know it just kind of life makes plans for you, and and right. um, you know I, I wanted to be a, a comic strip cartoonist. Um, at the end of the day, it's probably better that it didn't work out, just because. Um, my uh, desire to be a, a newspaper cartoonist came right at the very beginning of newspapers dying. And years later, when I met Gary Trudeau, he told me that he tells people who he meets who want to like follow in his footsteps don't that they should take up animation and move to Hollywood because that's that's where cartooning is living today. Whereas newspaper comic strips are are it's tough. I mean, you could be back in the back in like the 70s and 80s, you could be a multi-millionaire cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's really tough to be that now because there's so few comic, so few papers that publish them. I guess what just happened is just I I, I failed. I mean, I I wasn't able to become a full time cartoonist, and so I also started doing writing, and uh, and then along with the and the first write the first journalistic um, forays I made were not political at all. They were just it was just basic journalism about things that interested me, uh, celebrity stuff for Entertainment Weekly or, or random other stuff in Washington, D.C. that I wrote for Washington City Paper or for um, the Washington Post style section. And the reporting just – I just it, that just did better. I just thrived more, mm-hmm. and that career just – people want, people were willing to pay me a lot more to do that uh, than, than, <laughs> than they were to pay me to be a cartoonist. But there were times in the 90s – when I was trying to figure out how can I make a living as a cartoonist and I came up with like ways, well, if I, you know, I'm getting this much a week from, from this publication for, you know, for, for roll call for doing a comic strip once a week, I, you know, I I think it was probably like $200 a comic or something. So I was just figuring out, okay, how can I replicate that so that I make, you know, somewhere between $30,000 and whatever a year and just, I can make a living and then that will be my focus, but I just could never get there. And I came up with um, – I had a, an alt-weekly character called Max Zeitgeist, 20-something detective. <laughs> this, was, this was in the early 90s, so it was a lot – it sounds like a cliche. But at the time, it was kind of uh, like on the edge. But, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I got the addresses of every single alt-weekly in the country and sent them. And, you know, I figured like if I got 10 of them to pay me 10 bucks a week, that's, a, that's 100 bucks. Right. Uh, uh, or that's a thousand bucks, right? You know, and, and whatever. I mean, um, or that way, ten, 10 of them, to 10 bucks a week <laughs> is a hundred bucks. Okay. But in any case, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it was that kind of, I'm not good at math. It was that kind of addition. I was like, how can I make it happen? But ultimately I just, I, I just couldn't make it work. And, and, you know, it's not a, it's not a field where you really can call shots. I mean, it's one of right. these things like I would do, um, I would do illustrations for the Washington post of just anything. Of just you know trying to anticipate what they might need on any given day to illustrate the you know to just to have a to break up the monotony of the op-ed page, and so you know you you draw whatever a mailbox you draw a a coin you draw a dollar bill whatever and just like send like thirty of them into the Washington Post and like they don't you know they use it or they don't and if they use it they pay you like you know a hundred bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you. You just like pick up the paper and you, it's in there or it's not. <laughs> so it's a real it was a real feast or famine kind of field. And like um, ultimately, the people started paying me a lot more and are offering me full time jobs for the for the writing. And that's just the direction it went. Well, you know, so you have done, I mean, cartoons and the writing and now in front of the camera. And what, what was the biggest transition for you being a, a writer to being someone who's actually on TV all the time? Well, it's a whole different um, – the writing for TV and writing for print are obviously very, very different. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not just um, that you can be much longer in print. It's also just um, writing to picture. You need to do that in TV. Writing to sound, you can do that in TV. Um, grabbing people more, making it more compelling uh, early on. Um, and – Writing for print is different, and also like writing for print. You know, are you writing a 500-word piece or you're writing right. a 10,000-word piece? Because at City Paper, we would do you know, once every five or six weeks, we had to do a, a cover story, and those have to be somewhere between 
3,000 and 10,000 words. Um, this is under David, the late, great David Carr. Um, so that, that's very different. Also, um, learning broadcast skills is a whole other weird thing. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's just common sense, but, you know, your, your voice has to sound a certain way mm -hmm. and your presentation has to be a little different and you can't, it's, it's, it's a lot of like, do these 30 things and, and oh, by the way, you know, sound authentic and, right. uh, which is difficult to do. You know, this as a broadcaster as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's not entirely a different field, but it is, it, but it's very distant. It's, it's, I mean, it's in the same way that like badminton and football are both athletic right. endeavors, but, but they're really not very similar. I mean, there are, there are things that are similar, uh, but in terms of like being in shape or in terms of like exercising, but, but other than that, it's very different. So yeah, I mean, it's a whole different field. I can look, I, I can't watch early clips of myself. I mean, on TV, I can't watch any clips of myself. Yeah, I can, and that's the other thing is I don't watch any clips of myself either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even being mostly on radio now, I, I hate to hear my voice. And you, you mentioned exercising, but having had a couple of talks lately about doing TV stuff and mindful, I got to get myself back in shape. It, it's widescreen TVs and everything else. It's just that there's a whole extra element to being on TV that is so aggravating and necessary. The camera does add pounds. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. I mean, the camera adds a lot of weight to people. I know this. I've, I've lost 15 pounds this year and, um, I did it for health reasons, not for, um, not for, uh, appearance reasons, but, um, I look at picture, I look at video of me like a year or two ago and I'm like, God, I look so jowly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's, I mean, part of it is just like the camera really does add weight. And so it's, it's rather unforgiving. Well, so how does your family deal with you being on TV? Because my kids get freaked out if I get recognized anywhere with them in public. And I guess to a degree, there's a difference between living in Macon, Georgia and Washington, where there are so many recognizable people around. But is it a, a, a balance for them? Um, there, you know, first of all, it's only really uh, relatively recently that that I am that I get recognized, you know, when I go out. It's only real in terms of it happening like almost every time it's probably more um, just in the last year or two, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, since everybody started paying a lot more attention to, to politics and to cable. Um, so um, I don't know what they think about it. Um, I mean, our family life is pretty normal um, and it's really focused a lot on, you know, going to little league games and playing Legos and, and that sort of and sleepovers and that sort right. of thing. So there isn't a lot of, I think that it's more often than um, like, you know, kids don't watch cable news. Um, Thank God for that. Yeah. Yeah. But their, their parents might, but the kids don't. So I, I, I mean, they know that I'm on TV, but um, you know, I don't think they really have any idea of like um, what it means or anything other than this is, you know, it, it's it just it's always been this way. My daughter was born in 2007, so for her first year of her life, I was a campaign reporter, mainly covering Obama in uh, 07, 08. And so for her first year of her life, she would watch. You know, she, I'd be on the road all the time, mm -hmm. and my wife would watch TV. And so my girl, my baby girl, would see like 15 seconds of me on the road in Iowa or whatever. Then like two minutes of Obama in the piece, because if I was covering Obama, or two minutes of McCain or whatever, and then 15 seconds of me. 
So Obama was one of her first words, um, <laughs> just because it's easy to say, and right. also like the, the, it was said all the time when watching me. Um, but uh, but in terms of like me being on TV, I think they kind of just got used to it. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just like it's always been that way. Daddy's on TV. Yeah, I can totally see that. So I, I do have to ask. I mean, speaking of little league games and everything else, you being from Philly, uh, have you ever wanted to throw batteries at someone on TV? Just being from Philly, <laughs> <laughs> just because I'm a just because I'm a Philly fan. Yes, um, yes, and and ice and ice balls too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> snowballs that are really frozen. Never at Santa Claus, as was done famously or infamously at, a, at an Eagles game. But uh, but yeah, no. I mean, that's part of being a, a Philly fan is having that kind of like really angry loud side of you that that wants to my kids don't like watching sports with me because i get really emotionally invested in the game <laughs> well it's, it's good to get emotionally invested in something other than politics these days oh god yes absolutely well and, and you know i i don't want to get into politics here but we we do we are in the season where it seems like everybody is at each other's throat these days and you are admirably one of the people who i think is just as tough on this administration as you were on the last and it's really fun funny to for me to see people who were cheering you on for eight years suddenly be angry at you for daring to ask tough questions and uh, it doesn't ever get tired for remembering by the way because i'm always you know it's so annoying when people you know well did you you know you didn't you didn't cover benghazi yes i did i covered yes i did i did it a lot and i took it very seriously and it's funny because um you know we're in this debate right now and the the world is in this debate about gold star families and you know i had um the mother of one of the, the victims of Benghazi on the show several times, Sean Smith's mom, and I never understood, and we talked about this on TV, I never understood why the Obama administration and more specifically Secretary Clinton didn't reach out to her to offer sympathies because there's so much that, you know, uh, that's so much that's just basic human decency you want to like say, you know, sometimes people just want to know that you hear them and, and that you see them and that you care enough to know the name of the person who died carrying out this mission that you ordered. And I never really understood that. And now we, you know, that, that was something we discussed in the previous administration and now we're discussing it again. And it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just an era where I just, people would just be a little bit more decent. There was yeah. last week I, I did a Twitter thread where I said, let's just do a thought experiment. Yeah, I retweeted this one. Oh, thanks. Just, let's, let's just assume everybody had the best intentions here. Let's yeah. just assume everybody had the best intentions. And um, so President Trump called this woman. This is before General Kelly came out and explained his side of the story, which which basically is this. He was trying to do good here, which, you know, I totally believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's trying to trying to do good here. And then we have to assume good intentions of uh, Congresswoman Wilson, too, that she felt the family was wronged and she wanted to, like, seek justice for them. You know, you can obviously debate and say, well, maybe she should have done it privately or this or that. But like, OK, but I'm just talking about intentions here. And at the end of the day, assuming the best intentions of everybody, General Kelly, Congresswoman Wilson, President Trump, you still end up with a call that went wrong. And, you know, I, I don't know why you wouldn't just the president and the White House wouldn't just say, OK, let's just try to fix this. But everyone just assumes the worst intentions in everyone. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I, I ask people to engage in this thought experiment. And so many people were just incapable of it. Right. They were just like, well, I'll, I'll do that, but I won't assume the best intentions for President Trump. But, th- but that's what the experiment is. That's, right. That's, then you're not engaging. I, I'll do that, but Congresswoman Wilson was totally you know, politicized. I get it. I get it. I understand. I understand the criticism of everybody in this except for the uh, widow. I haven't heard any criticism of her, nor do I think there should be. But like, what? 
just try to assume the best intentions here. Just try. Right. Um, but we're in a place now where nobody wants to. Uh, it's so frustrating, which is one reason I, I, I have started really enjoying having these conversations with people is, is where we can kind of get away from the, the daily squabbling about politics that's never ending and frustrating on all sides. So before we get out of here, though, I, I've got one question that I've tried to ask everybody, uh, sometimes failing, uh, but that is excluding the cool stuff like super speed flying, seeing through walls, x-ray vision, that sort of stuff. If there was a mediocre superpower that could improve just Jake Tapper's life, what would it be? Um, so time, tra- I can't do time travel. I can't do invisibility. No, I, I'll give you some examples. Uh, one, one person said, uh, just the ability to heat up and make good the coffee at Fox <laughs> as oh, a mediocre okay. superpower. Okay. <laughs> um, how about, um, okay, here's a, here's a mediocre superpower. How about only needing one hour of sleep a day? Oh, that would actually, that would be a good one. Yeah. If I only needed one hour of sleep a day, I could accomplish more, and and I could I could, like there's so like I'm still not caught up on the Vietnam series on PBS. So, you know, there's still <laughs> I haven't even so, started so watching much. that yet. Oh, it's so good, and it's so and it's so even-handed. It's just like, I mean, yeah, it's just a, it's the Civil really, War is really, my favorite really well thing ever uh, on TV. So I'm I'm looking forward to this one. So that's my mediocre superpower, I, only needing one hour of sleep. That's a, I think that's a pretty good yeah, one. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. I, I will give okay. you that one. I, it, it, mine is is actually being able to sleep next to my wife at night without my arm falling asleep. <laughs> without your arm falling asleep? Yes. It, it, you, mean like, you mean like under her? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every time I, I can't like actually in the wintertime when it's cold sleep next to my wife because my arm's going to fall asleep under her neck. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we yeah. Well, that's nice. That's a sweet. Uh, maybe. Uh, well, now I'm now mine isn't as. No, that that's uh, quite. Sweet. Listen, an, an hour a night is perfect. Is all nice and sweet. Like you set me up. <laughs> you set me up basically. Totally said Yeah, I'm, totally unintentional. I'm, I'm not going to tell my wife to listen to this. Yeah, me yeah. Me too. That one too. That yes. I could cuddle with my wife more. Totally. Yeah, that'll work. Well, listen. <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time out of your very busy day to do this. I really appreciate it and very much enjoy your show and what you do Thanks, and Derek. just your willingness to be fair to everybody and and give everybody a hard time when they deserve it. Thank you, sir. And I'm always thinking about you and your family, and I hope you guys are doing okay. Thanks very much. We are. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.